Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down over coffee and have a personal face-to-face conversation with Jesus? In our eight-week series, Conversations with Jesus, we explore just that. Pull up a chair and listen in as Pastor Ron shares with us what that really did look like. Good morning, church family. Uh, what, a, what a good thing to be with you and to celebrate your service and fruitfulness this last year. We're just going to have a great time, and I would welcome you back to our celebration that's happening right after the second service in the gym. It's going to be great. Um, so we've been in this series in God's Word, thinking and listening to uh, the conversations Jesus is having with people. I was reminded in high school of this moment where I had this critical test I was taking and uh, got into the classroom, sat down at my desk. I had my number two pencil out, you know, ready to, for some of you, you're not sure what those are, but um, those of us used, used pencils. I was taking this, the test gets handed out, and as the, the, I, I get this test, I'm eager, you know, my, my pulse is racing a little bit, and I'm, you know, I think I've really aced this because I've studied hard for this test, and it gets handed out, and I start looking at all the questions. And I realize, you know, this panic starts to swell up in me. My stomach starts to do a little jumping jack thing, and I, this little beads of sweat start. To, and I realize I don't have any of the answers. I've studied the wrong stuff. I don't know if you've ever been in the middle of that where you, all of a sudden you just like, and I, I prided myself on doing pretty well in tests, and and uh, so my immediate reaction was, what, you know, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to, fortunately, it was an essay, so I could make stuff up. So I was like, okay, I've got to make up all the answers. I've got, I've got to just, you know, fake it the whole way. And I started praying, God, give me the answers. And, and I wasn't hearing any audible voice from him. And so I just made the whole thing up. I don't know if you've ever felt life is like that a little bit, where all of a sudden things come out and you've thought that you had the answers and you don't. you don't. You don't have the answers for a lot of different reasons you don't. And so um, you, you, you fake it, right? You fake parenting or you, you fake your marriage. You fake all kinds of different things that crisis come up in your life and you're trying to figure it out. And then hopefully you come to a place where you say, oh, Lord, help. Now, the wonderful thing is, it's not like me at this test. The great thing is that God loves to answer that request. We get to that place where we finally turn to him and say, Lord, speak or I'm toast. He does. He loves to speak into our lives. Our issue is that we often don't listen. All right, that's, that's the bigger deal with me, the bigger deal with us together. Though he speaks and does so clearly, it's difficult to listen. And we're going to dive into a conversation in John chapter 10 that fleshes that out, people that had a really hard time listening to the Lord. What if when God speaks, because of my background, because of the culture that I grew up in, or perhaps because of my worldview, my religion that I grew up in, I wasn't very good at listening to what God was trying to say. And he kept saying it repeatedly and got visual with me and helped me to, but I I couldn't hear it because I had a set of preconceptions. I had a set of understanding that kept me from listening 
to the Lord God. And, and although Jesus, delightfully so, loves for me to know him and loves for me to understand his desires for my life, often it's those things. It's the things that I, that I believe in or that I'm convicted about that keep me from hearing the word, the voice of God. I have a friend who said, yeah, um, in our church, no one really has opinions. People have convictions. They have, and what he's saying is, it, it's not just about like the big things in life. We want convictions. We want to put flags in a hill and fight and die for some things, like the gospel, who Jesus is. We're going to hear some of it in John chapter 10. But there are a lot of things that we have convictions about that we shouldn't have convictions I have convictions whether we ought to have pews or chairs in this room. Some of you do. What's that? That's not a really a conviction. That's an opinion. It doesn't come from the voice of God. And that was what these people that Jesus finds that he's speaking to here in John 10 were wrestling with. And I want you to just listen to the word of God as we dive into it. It's a conversation that Jesus is having. And I love that he has it because he really wants these people to get it, to understand, to love him, even though in their heart they were wrestling. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. John 10, verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, then we provided some around you, or you can look on with a friend. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one from God, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Of which of them are you going to stone me? That Jesus answered them, The Jews answer him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it's not written in your law. I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming. Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained, and many came to him, and they said, 
John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So here's the setting, because the setting is critical. First, there was a group of people there in the temple, these Jews. They, they had a set of convictions, religious convictions that they were confident of were true, and they, they were committed to them because they, they knew that they were of a certain heritage that God loved them more. And if they did these set of good works, that they would be acceptable and better than others, acceptable to God. They were committed to that worldview. And these Jews, they come to Jesus and they they ask him a question, would you just show us if you're really the Christ? Now, you would think that that question is a legitimate question. I mean, there are times where I'm confused. I don't understand it all. But these people had come with not a questioning heart, but they came with an agenda right, to try to trip up Jesus. They were committed to their own worldview, and they were offended by Jesus for a lot of different reasons. It starts, actually, the conversation starts in John 8, where Jesus begins teaching them, this group of people who were committed to this view, that he was the light of the world. He actually says it, I am the light of the world. Don't walk in darkness, but walk in the light. Now, in the wonderful creativity of God through his son Jesus, he wouldn't just make a statement. I've often mentioned this, but he would back it up. He'd back that statement up with an activity. So in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Come, follow me and walk in the light, but don't walk in the darkness. And then in John chapter 9, he does what had never been done before. He, he takes a man who is blind from birth, and he gives him sight. And what follows in John chapter 9 is this really humorous conversation between this set of Jews who had these religious convictions about who God was and who they were. And they were convicted and convinced that, that Jesus was not of them. And they try to convince this guy who was blind and then healed that this couldn't be a good thing. It couldn't be good that he received his sight because it happened on a Sunday, or Sabbath, actually, Saturday. And it couldn't be good because this man who healed him had to be bad. And then in that context, the man, this John 9, says, well, I, you know, I don't know about all these things. All I know is once I was blind... And now I see. Jesus is helping them see. I'm the light of the world. Let me demonstrate that physically with an activity that only God could do so that you might understand that I really truly am the light. So you can follow me. Walk here. Follow me. And you'll be in the light. Don't walk in the darkness anymore. They were still wrestling with that. They couldn't understand the the word picture. So Jesus gives them another word picture. This is an agrarian society, right? Ranchers, farmers, you know. And so into that setting, he says, at the beginning of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. You're the sheep, I'm the shepherd. He's making a statement about his identity and about their identity. And it was really, under, really critical for them to catch it because it was an issue of their identity that they were struggling with, who they were and who they were before God. 
So that's the group of people that had come to the temple. They're at this place where God and people were intended to connect in intimacy. For people to offer sacrifice and be dedicated and to become new to him and to understand his truth. And so they were there and here was Jesus sent to them. And at the very beginning of the text, you'll notice it happens at a particular time. At the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is now known by a different word. Do you know it? It's Hanukkah. That's, that's what it was. So there's a history behind there. I'll just rehearse it really briefly for you. The history was that the Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, came and conquered the region. And when he did, he forbade God's people to worship. And his agenda was to be worshipped and for God, Yahweh, not to be worshipped. And so he went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And he took the blood of the pig and he threw it on the people and he threw it all over the temple, desecrating everything. And it was a striking desecration of the temple and all that the people wanted to do. And he forbade people to come and worship or even to pray. Of course, you can't stop people from praying, but that was his agenda. It so incited the people that a few years later, Judas Maccabees and a group of his brothers, four brothers, rose up in rebellion, the Maccabean revolt. And they, they were victorious by the power of God over a series of years. They were able to, to get the Seleucids out of that region and to reclaim the temple, and they rededicated it. That was why they were feasting, remembering that God had been faithful and delivered, that provided and had delivered them. But there's also another element to that feast, and that is that it was called the Feast of Lights. As you know, Hanukkah has a menorah, and they, they celebrate what happened there. And according to their tradition, what happened was that they were going to light the flame again in the temple. There was a flame that would last. It was a, an imagery of God being light, exactly, and that he would continue to be present with them. And so they had this light that was blown out by this, this evil ruler, and they didn't have enough oil. It had to be consecrated oil, according to their laws, for them to burn. They only had one day's worth, and they, they put it in anyway, and they started it. And according to their history, it, it kept burning, and it kept burning for eight days until they could have enough oil to, to be able that was consecrated and to restart the lamp, but the lamp kept burning. So that's why they were celebrating it, that God provided light and God provided deliverance. And in that context, the Son of God is having a conversation with these people. God sent to man to have conversation with them, to give his life for them, and to be a light and to be that one who would deliver them. That's the context, and that's why it says in the Feast of Dedication, because every feast points to something. Every feast in the Old Testament has really rich spiritual truth. Colossians 2, 16 through 17 tells us that, that these feasts were designed by God for them to understand who Jesus is and for us to get these great spiritual truths out of. So that was the context where Jesus is meeting these people who had been to this point very resistant toward him. And they begin by asking, how long will you keep us in suspense? 
There are things I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of things I don't know. I, and so sometimes I make them up. There's a lot of things, actually, I've had these conversations with people about what they think heaven's going to be like. There are some things that Scripture says it's going to be beyond our expectation and knowledge. But a lot of times when I hear people describe heaven, they describe it in very human terms. The things that they like will be in heaven. Can I just set the record straight? Heaven's not about you. Heaven's about the glory of God. Now, it's going to be fantastic. There are a lot of things that will be mind-blowing for you, but it's not about you. You're not at the center of things, just like this life is really truly about God himself first and foremost and how we relate to him. So they're asking the question, how long will you keep us in suspense, even though he's already told them repeatedly, and even though he's demonstrated that, they're still asking this question, not sure whether it's genuine, but there are things, a lot of things I don't know. Will the Sharks ever win the Stanley Cup? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know there are some things that we can know that the voice of God is very clear to us for and that all the most important things for me to know in order to have the greatest life possible here and now and eternally, he has told me. He's already spoken to clearly so that I might understand I just wasn't listening. And that's the issue of these people. He's already repeated it. And if you read through the book of John, from the very beginning, he's already said that he is the light. John chapter 1. And he keeps repeating these messages to these people, and they, they keep having a hard time understanding what he's saying because they have this culture and this religious viewpoint. They have all these things that are blocking them from understanding the truth of God, and they had a hard time listening and they were selfish and self-centered and self-righteous, like every person. And so it's hard to listen when God speaks clearly. And so he tells them once again what their issue was. You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. You've mistaken your identity. You've thought you're something that you really truly aren't, God didn't design you to be this way. I've got a very much better design for you. I want you to be a sheep. Not woolly and stupid. That's not what he's saying. He, he's saying, I, I need you to understand this, that I'm God. I'm created to protect you, to provide for you, to care for you, nurture you, to walk you into green pastures. That's who I am. I'm the good shepherd. And you are designed to follow, to hear my voice, to know it, and to follow that. Not resistant, but to listen carefully to the voice of the shepherd and to follow, knowing that that's where protection is and my care is and my feeding is. How are you doing with that, by the way? How are you doing with listening to the voice of God and really truly being who God has created you to be? A sheep, not something else. He's not called you to be a donkey. He's called you to be a sheep. So he's, he's given them, the John chapter 10, the beginning of John 10, this wonderful imagery of sheep and the good shepherd. And now he's going to return to that theme in this text that we just read in the second half of John chapter 10. And it's an issue really about identity. They felt they were strongly convicted that because they were ethnically connected to Abraham 
And because they did a set of good works, their ethnicity and their good works saved them. That's what they believed. We know, hopefully you know this, that your ethnicity doesn't save you. I praise God for that because I'm not Middle Eastern. All right? I, I praise God that it's not my ethnicity that saves me. I praise God that it's not my good works that save me because my good works don't measure up. Actually, Romans already told us that several weeks ago we were studying that text, Romans chapter 2, that I don't, I don't have good works. No one does good. No, he repeats it again, not one, not one person does. So if that doesn't save me, what does? And that's the conversation Jesus is having with them. And then he makes these, this set of statements about that really get at our identity, where he says, his sheep, they follow him. And he says it clearly one more time that, that he is the giver of life and that our life in him is secure. Do you see it starting in verse 27? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our life in Him is secure. Now, all those statements are identity statements about who I am. First, my sheep, they know my voice. Let me ask. I don't know how you came this morning, but how are you at listening to the voice of God? When he speaks, do you hear him? That's a, that's a mark that Jesus wanted them to understand. It's not about laws and do's and don'ts. It's about hearing the voice of God and following. How are you doing at that? Um, we have on our website a bunch of videos of people who've come to faith in Christ and just telling their story. Um, and it's what God did to break them, what God did to break the mold. And, and they're declaring those testimonies. By the way, you can still get up there. You can still unload your story. And if you'd like to do that, we've got instructions for you. But I'd just like to show one of them this morning so you can hear the story of a friend of mine. I'm James, and this is my breaking the mold story. Um, I grew up uh, in a Christian family, and, and this is kind of rare because I grew up in Taiwan. And about 40 years ago when I was growing up, you know, being a Christian in Taiwan, that's kind of a rare rarity where all your neighbors are either in Buddhism, Taoism, or just doing a lot of, practicing a lot of uh, ancestor worship. Um, and also in that culture, there's something else that uh, kind of comes along with it. It's, it's how you identify yourself of who you are and what you're worth. And it's usually tied to a few things. One of the things is uh, what kind of family are you coming from? Did your family have a history of being successful? Um, and, uh, and, and there's a couple other things that ties it with it, you know, about who you are. It's about, you know, what you have done, you know, what uh, degree that you have earned in, uh, you know, what accomplishment. So, you know, having those two different, you know, value in my head there's a little bit of struggle because, you know, even when I was a young kid, I do believe that, you know, it doesn't matter what happened, God will always love me. 
but at the same time, I have this cultural uh, influence on me about who, you know, how I'm going to identify myself. Who, who am I, in other words. When I was about 11 to 12, we had an opportunity to actually immigrate here in the U.S. And to a would-be junior hire, that was a culture shock. So when I got here, um, you know, the search of identity continued. Uh, I kind of bended together with a group of kids that are recent immigrants. So we kind of, you know, we don't speak the language. We kind of smell funny sometimes with the, you know, the herbal medicine that you, your parents cook at home and stuff like that. And we, I kind of expected to be treated differently in, in finding my, my, myself. But what was shocking to me was actually there's another group of Chinese, that are American-born Chinese, that really looked down on us. And that was a, just a big shock. And through that, those experiences, I started to kind of, you know, trying to fit in, trying to find my identity. So all through high school, um, as I actually started to lose my accent, I actually started denying that I actually spoke a word of Mandarin in, in trying to find myself. And God, you know, gave me some ability in terms of, uh, you know, being athletic. So I started getting into uh, sports scenes, or being, you know, hanging out with the cool kids. And that started to kind of define me. And it's not until I got into college, and my mom actually, uh, through our next-door neighbor, got her, got her back to, to, uh, to church. And I went along with her, kind of at arm's length. Um, and I got involved with the, uh, the youth group there. And it's not until that time that I actually observed a lot of the kids there. There's just something different about them. Um, they were just full of joy. They were just on fire for God. And what's different is that they actually embraced their Chinese culture. Um, and those kids, I mean, they're about probably on average four or five years younger than me, but they taught me so much. And, and God, through, through them, actually allowed me to finally realize that my identity is that I'm a child of God, that I'm part of his family, and my worth, and amazingly, is that my worth is, is worth the king of kings dying on the cross for me. And uh, it's been a long journey. Even today, I still get reminded, you know, every day, that my worth is not, uh, you know, the car I drive, the house I own, the family that I that seems to be all together. Uh, he continues to remind me that my identity is that I'm a child of God, and that I'm worth uh, dying for by the King of Kings. Isn't that just amazing? So thanks for listening to my story. I love that how. Um James was wrestling with the identity issue, and he discovered that actually he was a child of God, and how that shaped him, how that changed things. And that's really the point that Jesus is going to be driving here. The, the sheep and the shepherd thing, it's a metaphor, right? You're not really created to be a sheep. You're created to be his child. But the sheep's really a great metaphor because it helps us understand what does that child behave like? First, I listen to the voice. I respond to him and his protection and his care. I don't, I don't try to go to a different field or out on my, my own. I, I live under his protection, his care, and I respond to him. And I do that as, as his child. So the first statement that Jesus says there is that we're sheep, and sheep are designed to follow him. And that's an identity statement about who we're created to be. We're created to be a person who responds to the voice of God. And goes there. And if you've never done that, if you've been resisting that all of your life, like these people, these Jews, then, then it's always going to be a struggle. 
You're never going to have relationship with God. You're never going to enjoy life to its fullest. And the second thing he says there, if, you, if you're noticing, is that, that he is the giver of life. He is the source of real life. If, if you're trying to pursue that in other places, you're not going to discover it. You can try all kinds of other things. These Jews were trying to discover it in a, in a set, a cultural set and a religious set of laws that they were following so that they might live up to the expectations of others. But I, you know this, right? You can never live up to others' expectations and find joy. That's not where life is found. It's found in relationship with God that's right. And then this third thing that he presses there is that, that we're secure in him. There's no one, he says, that can snatch them, he's talking about the sheep, that's us, out of the Father's hand. That's a really powerful statement. Now, it really is a statement about our security in him. Those people who have relationship with God are secure in that relationship. Why? Because he's a great shepherd. We have, we have one that is great, and he's on our side, and he protects us. And we have what theologians call eternal security because of the eternal power of God and his love for us, his care for the sheep. So some great truths that Jesus is speaking out into these people's lives. And no one, he says, or no thing can steal one of the sheep from him. It's, it's a statement that's echoed in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we have our security in that. And then he says that fantastically great statement, and I and the Father are, we're one. It's a statement, I mean, throughout the book of John, if you've read through the book of John, what happens in every chapter is that there is a claim of the divinity of Jesus, that he's not just another great prophet, but he's actually God himself. I had a conversation with a friend of mine in a coffee shop this week, and he's stepped out of one religious following that he was a part of a cult, and now he's just fishing and I was just asking him about his spiritual journey, and he was talking about it. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of good prophets. I said, yeah, but there's none that have claimed what Jesus claims, right? He goes, yeah, let's have some more coffee. (laughs) We're going to continue to have this conversation. He wants to have that conversation. These people, when they heard Jesus' claim and him say it very distinctly right here in John chapter 10 one more time, They rose up with stones. They're in the temple, by the way, to stone him. Let me ask you, where'd they get the stones? It's not like they provided, you know, here here the stone pile here in the middle of church, right? They They didn't do that. Doesn't it seem a little bit ironic that they would have these stones? So it tells me it's a premeditated act. They came with these things ready to stone. They had hate in their heart toward Jesus. And yet, interestingly enough, Jesus still has this conversation with them. He's still pursuing them, even in the middle of their hatred. They don't understand that they're not gods, but they are bristling every time they hear Jesus make a bold claim about his identity and their identity. It says this in 1 John 4, 7 through 9. Beloved, he's talking to believers, followers of Christ. Let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might, be, we might live through him. Now, isn't that fascinating? What, what the determining factor is, is love. That's how we know a person is his or not. But these people were responding in hatred. So we know they, they weren't his. For what good work Jesus asks that I have done, are you going to stone me? That's a good question, isn't it? Why, why do you have hatred in your heart? The issue actually is it's they're jealous. They're jealous of the power of God. They're, they're jealous of Christ in their midst and the claim that he's making that he had already backed up. They're jealous because Jesus knew who he was and they didn't. They had lost their identity. And then the text says Jesus escapes. And you're not sure how. All right, it doesn't describe how he did this. He's, he's gathered all these people who are gathered around him and the text doesn't fill in the, does he go hoofing out of there like running away? We don't, we don't know what happens, but what happens is he ends up at the Jordan, a fascinating place for him to end up. And why does he end up there? John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was in the same place, the text tells us. And in that place, people would go to John because they were broken and they needed God. And they would come to John and they would repent. They would turn away from where they were going and make a 180 toward God and embrace him and his identity for them. And they would be broken. And then in doing so, they would be baptized. A baptism of repentance. That was John's baptism. And now here Jesus goes out to the same place. He's calling those who would seek him, those who would hear his voice, to come. And it says in the text that people did come. People came. Not the people necessarily that were gathering with the stones in the temple, but they, these people who were actually true seekers of God, they came and they sought relationship with him. And it said many believed in him. Does God have something better to offer? Well, those people believed it. They, they came and they embraced that God did have something for them, but they weren't, they weren't discovering it yet. And they came out to the Jordan, away from all the distractions of what was going on in the city, and just listened to Jesus, and then became convinced that he was the Messiah. The story, which is a great story, and actually, I, I don't know if you've dove into the story a little bit, and you heard Jesus' second response to people, which seems very confusing and convoluted, doesn't it? Says, what, what, why doesn't he just speak it plainly? You know, why doesn't he just say it? Well, he already did say it plainly. He already said, I and the Father are one. I, I am the Messiah. He's already said it plainly and given them word pictures. And so then he just throws them back in the Old Testament, gets them to scratch their head, and he's trying, they're trying to figure it out. They're not understanding what his statements are all about. But he does land again by saying, I'm, I'm the one sent by God, and I and the Father have come to give you life, and you're not receiving it. So he comes and waits for people to come to him, which they do. Now, big picture, I want you to take a step back, a macro picture of this text. There's a, a truth underlying here that Jesus is getting at. He's the offer of life. He's going to say it in another couple chapters. I am the resurrection and the life. 
But the problem is that real life demands real trust in Jesus. For these people who surrounded him in the temple, for them to discover life, they, they were going to have to really trust Jesus, and they were not willing to do that. They were trusting themselves. They were trusting their good works. They were trusting their ethnicity. They were trusting their religion. And that wasn't good enough because that's not how a person becomes a child of God. We have to step back and understand the broken pieces of our identity, and only God can answer that. And we have to place our trust in him. And it demands real change. And that was the twist, wasn't it? It's the hardest thing for all of us. For a person to walk faithfully with God, they have to embrace the C word, change. Initially, I have to let go of all the things that I've been pursuing, and I have to do the 180 toward God and pursue him and seek change. And daily, a person who follows God has to give up stuff and actually seek that God would change me to become like Jesus. And that's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. It requires faith, trust, full confidence in God that he knows what he's doing, that I'm not the shepherd, that he is. I'm the sheep. I listen to his voice. I follow. That's my job. I'm not somebody else. And that's good. That's a great gift that God has in store for me. This, um, this year, we've been encouraging you to be praying for friends who have yet to discover Christ. And the conversation, when God leads that to a spiritual conversation with you, I want you to remember this, that it's our passion for people to discover real life in God. Not, not what they've been settling for, but really great, rich, eternal life. But that won't happen unless they come to a place of real trust in Jesus. They have to give their full confidence to Christ and who he is. And that will require real change in them. That's why we're praying, because it's hard. It's difficult for a person. Now, there's sometimes where God brings a person to a place of great brokenness. Then they can get it because they want change. They know it's right. But many of my friends, people that are on my list that I'm praying for, they're still struggling with this. They don't want to change. They feel pretty confident in who they are. But they've mistaken their identity. They need to find the truth. And God's voice is still speaking out to them, pursuing them, even if they hate him. Like these people, they, they hated Jesus, and yet isn't it great that he's still speaking out to them? We have confidence in that. But know that it's hard, and change is hard. And if you came this morning and you don't have a relationship with God, I acknowledge that. It's, it's challenging. But there's nothing that compares to a life that pursues Christ. That that's where life is found in him. And that he actually was the Messiah, the Christ. He's not keeping you in suspense. That's not something you have to wonder about. He's made it very clear. He's made it clear through his life, through his works, through what he did in demonstrating it, through his own death and his resurrection. He's made it plain who he is. So come and follow him. Let me pray for you, if I might, please. Father, thank you for this conversation that you would have. The conversation that really was helping, attempting to help these who were struggling with you in really 
major ways fighting back against you to help them understand that you were their deliverer, that you were the light. Even in that moment where they were there to celebrate these things and they were resisting it and all they had was hate in their heart but you kept on pursuing them because you wanted them to understand who they were. They were your children. They were your sheep. You were the great shepherd. Lord, I thank you that you have designed us this way to listen to you pursue you and follow you as we listen to you. And I, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, this week. Help them to listen well to your voice and follow, to respond with confidence that you protect and you care and provide. And Father, I thank you that you love us and keep pursuing us. For those that we're praying for, Lord, to, to come to faith in you, I, I help us to understand, Lord, the power that you can move into their lives and change them and bring right change. But we're praying, Lord, that you would, for your name's sake, pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Bridges Community Church. If you want to find out more about Bridges and who we are, please check out our website at bridgescc.org.